Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and today we're going to uh, share uh, a little bit of Fulton Sheen's love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, he gave uh, a very powerful reflection a number of years ago under the title, The Woman I Love. And of course, yeah, I think you can guess that woman is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, Fulton Sheen uh, not only wrote a number of books about the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, he spoke so very fondly about her. And uh, so we'll reminisce a little bit today. But I just invite you, as I always do, just to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as he talks about the woman I love. Please enjoy. In the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, the subject of this meditation will be the woman I love, the woman every priest loves, and every sister. We all love her, our Blessed Mother. There is a professor at the University of California who wrote in one of his recent books, Whenever you hear a good word said about the Blessed Virgin, you can be sure that he is a Protestant. And if a bad word is said about her, it probably comes from a Catholic. That, of course, is a gross exaggeration. But it is true there is a growing devotion to our Blessed Lady. One of the best books on the 15 mysteries of the Rosary is by a Methodist minister of England. Ten for joy, five for sorrow, by Neville Ward. I was at a conference a week ago when a minister from Texas gave a very beautiful testimony about Our Lady. I'm going to talk of her under three titles, as a dream, as a mother, and as a spouse. First of all, as a dream. Much human love begins with a dream. We love an ideal before we love in fact. Emotions, sensations, memories, readings, all of these are like separate stones of a mosaic, and they eventually form a composite. And then a man says of a woman, that's the one. It is the realization of a dream. 
One day I had a friend from Switzerland come into the office of the Propagation of the Faith. And I introduced him to a few of the secretaries. That night he asked me to go to his home. He said, I want to show you a photograph, or rather a painting, that I made when I was a young man. And he showed it to me. And it was exactly like one of the secretaries. And he said, do you mind if I ask her to marry me? Marry her. Here was the ideal that he had long before the fact. Now that is true, of course, in art. Every artist precedes his painting. Whistler was once asked how he came to paint such a beautiful picture of his mother. He said, you know how it is. One tries to make one's mummy just as nice as one can. And if sometimes in the human order we love in ideal before we love in reality, it is always true that God loves an ideal before he loves, lives, loves in reality. Because first of all, God has in his head, speaking, speaking of course to understand our poor human nature, God has in his mind an understanding of everything in the world. Every tree, every bird, every flower was made according to an archetypal idea existing in the mind of God. So God had an ideal woman in his mind. He thought about her from all eternity. The first immaculate conception was in the mind of God. We conceive ideas. God has ideas too which he conceives. One of them was of the woman. And he dreamt of her in the great mystery of the Incarnation. It would only be later on in time that the dream would ever come true. But it was there. God never does anything without exceeding preparation. He labored for the days of Genesis to make a garden, as God alone knows how to make a garden beautiful. And then when he finished the garden, he put into it the first man and woman. And in it was celebrated the first nuptials of husband and wife. By the abuse of freedom, that garden was lost. So God dreamt of another garden, another paradise, a new Eden. An Eden that God would never have to blush if he sent anyone into it or came into it himself. No weed of sin would ever grow in it. Over the portals of that new garden, iniquity would have no place. And this paradise of the incarnation, this flesh-girt Eden, to be gardenered by the Adam new, was the Blessed Mother. Now we have in our human experience concupiscence. Concupiscence is an intense attraction for anything. We naturally love that which is beautiful and true and good and living. 
In our human order, concupiscence is often associated with evil because we can be attracted to evil. But there must have been in the mind of God a heavenly concupiscence for this perfect creature that he would make. God has two pictures of you and of me. One picture that he has of us is the way we ought to be. The other picture is the way we are. But God had only one picture of his mother, just one. What she was in ideal, she was in reality. And I believe that she is the ideal whom every man loves when he loves a woman. And I believe that she is also the ideal that every woman really wants to be. So Mary is a dream. And there has to be femininity in the divine order. Notice that, for example, our blessed Lord, when he wished to convey his idea of victimhood, what examples did he give? Masculine examples? No. Feminine. As the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, so would I have gathered thee. But thou wouldst not. And the other example to indicate his victimhood was a woman in labor. So here is the eternal feminine that always has to be the match of celibacy and chastity. Always. And the ideal became reality. And now we come to the Blessed Mother as a mother. God asked her if she would give him a human nature. She agreed. And it was a virginal conception. There should be no difficulty there. There are probably some converts in this group. They can remember the time when they received the gift of faith. When they received the gift of faith, Christ was born in them. He was born in the intellect because they saw God's truth. He was born in the will because they had the power of grace. And he was born in the body because the body became the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we, who were baptized as infants, perhaps, only came to that consciousness later on. But the fact is that Christ was born in each and every one of us. For example, we priests make converts. They are our, they are our children. Because we begot Christ in them. Now, if there therefore is a spiritual birth of Christ in souls as a result of conversion and baptism and hearing the word of God, and if also Christ does not come equally into everyone, because we're all not sufficiently empty to receive him, But the fact is that he does come to some very strongly. For example, he's in some minds. As to almost completely possess them and all they think about is his truth. Christ is everything. 
He possesses the will. He's their love. And then the body. He's in the body. So the body is the temple of God. And purity flows. But not everyone is the same. B may be much more intense than A. And R much more intense than C. Now, if there's a difference, therefore, in the conception of Christ in souls, is it surprising that there might be one creature in this world whose intellect would be so totally possessed by Christ, whose will was so given to him totally and completely, that once Christ came, not only did the body become a temple, but there was such a thing as the conception of Christ in the body. Everyone who is converted is converted by hearing the word of God. Hence when Lydia, alongside of the sea, heard the preaching of Paul, she conceived Christ by perception, by hearing. Mary heard the angel, and there was conception by perception. She was so much his that God became enfleshed in her. That's the virgin birth. We are familiar with it. In our spiritual rebirth, and in the deepening of our spiritual life. And when she became a mother, G.K. Chesterton took out of the litany a few of her titles and wrote about them beautifully. I will give you just a few of the quatrains of Chesterton. When God turned back eternity and was young, Ancient of days, growing little for your mirth, as under the low arch the land is bright, peered through you, gate of heaven, and saw the earth. Or shutting out his shining skies a while, built you about him for a house of gold, to see in pictured walls his storied world return upon him as a tale is told. Or found his mirror there, the only glass that would not break with that unbearable light, till in a corner of the high, dark house, God looked on God as ghosts meet in the night. Or risen from play at your pale Raymond's hem, God grown adventurous from all time's repose, climbed up your tall body as an ivory tower and kissed upon your lips a mystic rose. I will repeat that beautiful one. Or God grown adventurous from all time's repose, up your tall body climbed as an ivory tower and kissed upon your lips a mystic rose. Every mother who ever held a babe in her arm and who had faith said to the babe, God is up there. 
the mothers have the children look up to heaven. Mary looked down to heaven. Heaven was in her arms. Eternity and time. Omnipotence in bonds. The bird that built the nest is hatched therein. The creator of the mother became the son of the mother. And her life? Her life was one of constant victimhood. When we think of the Blessed Mother, we often transport her in the glory of the Assumption down to this earth. And we forget her trials. Just think, when the child was only a few days old, she brings him to the temple and meets an old man, Sibian. No generation gap when Christ is concerned. He held a babe in his arms and said to her, A sword will pierce thy heart. The word sword, there are two Greek words for sword. One Greek word, which I've forgotten, means a small dagger. The other Greek word is romphi, means a very long crescent sword. And that is the Greek word that is used in the gospel. They would pierce the heart of Mary. And who would hold the hilt? Her son would hold it. Immediately becomes a refugee. And she has to carry him into Egypt. And then at the age of twelve, when most boys think of running away, the divine child was no exception. He ran away too. The caravans of men and women traveled separately. And then at the end of the first day, as they checked one another, it was found that the divine child was missing. They found him only on the third day in the temple instructing the doctors of the law in a land where the father is supreme the mother speaks she said son that is what she must have called him ordinarily son thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing and he checked her practically said to her, what do you mean, my father? Have you forgotten the mystery of the Annunciation? There's my father. And I'm on his business. I have no earthly father. And from that time on, Joseph disappears from the Gospels. We never hear of him again. One thing that always troubled me 
was a seeming inconsistency between an old century-old custom of the Jews to make the boys sons of the commandments at 13. That is to say, at the age of 13, they were empowered to teach. As I travel around the country and meet various rabbis, I would always ask them, can you explain to me why Luke said that the divine child was 12 and you believe the age was 13? And finally, I found an answer from a rabbi in Toledo, Ohio. He said, oh yes, he said, we made an exception. If the father was dead, or in your case, because the mother was a virgin, the child could become a son of the commandments at 12. Now this is, should be in very close relationship to the sacrament of confirmation. But unfortunately, we have in the United States and in the Western world now, the longest juvenility in the world. When do we grow up? No great responsibility is thrown on us. There is never a crossing of a line, as there is, for example, with pagan peoples. There were always, for example, puberty rites. Yesterday you were a boy, today you're a man. Today there's a shifting back and forth. So that you meet a Madison Avenue crowd in New York City who want to imitate the teenagers. So that we no longer have that clear-cut passage that there was then, and there has been in history, between being young and being responsible. So the divine child, therefore, became the teacher at the age of 12. And then comes the marriage feast of Cana. And this is going to be a turning point. Our blessed Lord was beyond the Jordan, gathering up his first disciples. The blessed mother was already at the marriage feast. When our blessed Lord comes, and he is representative of the New Testament, and in the description of the marriage feast of Cana in John, it's constantly smacking of the Old Testament. For example, the six water pots and the washing when the Jews had to pour a thimbleful and eggshell of water down on the fingertips and then rub the palms and then take another eggshell full of water and run it downwards in the palms. So there's six water pots for all of these Old Testament washings. And here comes the New Testament into the old, blessed mother representative of the old, the daughter of Zion. And the wine gives out. Now, if you were having a wedding, you would have adequate wine. And this was a wine country. Why should the wine give out? Well, because our blessed Lord brought along all of his disciples. It was the first case of gate crashing in the history of Christianity. 
Now, it is the Blessed Mother who first notices there is no wine. She notices our needs quicker than we do. And she said to her divine son, they have no wine. Prayers can be very short. And he said, woman, what is that to me? In the original Greek, the statement is, what to me is to thee. Just that, what to me, to thee. Not even is. Woman, what to me, to thee. My hour has not yet come. Now, those of us who have been making the retreat from the beginning know the meaning of that word, hour. It means the moment when Christ delivers himself over into the hands of evil men and begins the redemption of the world. Our Lord is saying, this hour of my passion and my rejection by men has not yet come. Is it your will, my dear mother, that I begin my public life? Do you want me to work my first miracle and affirm that I am the Messiah and the Son of God? Do you realize that the moment I do that, my hour begins? Are you a mother sending your son to a battlefield? If that is your wish, your relationship to me changes. What to me is to thee. Up until now, you are known everywhere as the mother of Jesus. Once I begin my public life, you will no longer be known just as the mother of Jesus. You will be known as the mother of everyone that I will redeem during that hour. You will therefore become that woman spoken of in Genesis. You will become the universal mother of mankind. You will be the woman. Now, knowing that, what is your answer? And Mary turned to the servants and said, her last words in Scripture, Mary speaks seven times in Scripture. And these are her last. And what a beautiful valedictory they are. Whatsoever he shall say to you, that do ye. This is what devotion to Our Lady does for us. It makes us obedient to her Son. And as there is a decline in devotion to the Blessed Mother, there is a decline in the love of the Church, decline in the sanctity of marriage, and decline in purity. One year later, Blessed Mother, who often accompanies her son in his apostolic journeys, is worried about him and sends a messenger through a crowd to announce that she is there. And he said, Who's my mother? Can you imagine any of us priests, for example, ever saying on the day of ordination, when it is announced, Your mother's here, saying, Who's my mother? That's what he said. Who's my mother? Why? Because from now on we're not dealing with flesh and blood. 
He introduced a new order. All through the Old Testament, incidentally, what do you find an emphasis on? Generation, 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 begetting, begetting, begetting. The horrible horror, therefore, of a woman not having children. One woman clinging to seven men, as the prophet said. This was the order of the Old Testament. Now our blessed Lord comes in. There's no longer an emphasis on generation. It's what? It's doing the will of the Father in heaven. That's the foundation of celibacy. That. So our Lord said, anyone who does my will, the Father's will, he's my mother, my brother, my sister, my father, my mother. This is the new order. And that is why sisters are called sisters. We are called fathers. Because we are trying to obey the Father's will. So our Lord took the kingdom of God out of the order of the flesh. And we come now to the cross. And here we come to something you hardly ever hear about. I don't know why... Maybe because our books in the Blessed Mother copy one another and we never developed the whole doctrine of the Blessed Mother. But from now on, I'm going to talk not about Our Lady as an ideal, not as a mother. But as a spouse, a bride. Almost all the devotions we have are the sorrowful mother at the foot of the cross. First of all, was our mother sorrowful? No. Can you imagine anyone doing everything he can for the good Lord, ever being sorrowful? He can be in pain, he can be in agony. But he's not sorrowful. Why too, why too was every woman at the foot of the cross called Mary? Did you ever ask yourself that question? Why are they all married? They all couldn't have had the same name. I think that the Blessed Mother's name became a kind of a great title. And so that those who gave themselves completely and totally to Christ merited that title. This is not in the scripture. This is only my guess. And whenever I make a guess, I will tell you. But now we come back again to the scriptures. What we are witnessing here is not just Christ and his mother. Do you know what's taking place? A marriage. Let me take you back through the Old Testament again to show you how important this idea is. The human race began with a marriage. The incarnation was the nuptials of God and man. All through the Old Testament, God calls himself the husband. And Israel, his bride, his spouse. You'll find it particularly in Hosea. Poor Israel. In the, in the beautiful prophecy of Hosea, God says to Hosea, marry a prostitute. 
She's worthless. You'll be unfaithful. That's Israel. That's Israel. Unfaithful. Worthless. Worthless spouse of mine. And she sells herself as many men, children by other men. And poor Hosea's life is wrecked. And God says, Hosea, take her back. Take her back. Take her back. I can't let Israel go. I love Israel so much. What a consolation for the Jews. But the point is, nuptials. Now listen carefully, because this is something that you do not often have presented to you. The full doctrine of Our Lady. Who is our Lord on the cross? Adam. He's the new Adam. Who is the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross? The new Eve. As the old human race started with nuptials, the new human race is going to start with nuptials. As there was a sinful humanity that issued from the first, so there will be a regenerated humanity issuing from the second nuptials. And so our blessed Lord now looks down to his mother at a moment in which there is a kind of a consummation of the marriage. And as a result of this nuptial, someone is born. The one who was born is John. The beginning of the church And if you think I'm forcing things, let me quote for you from St. Augustine. Like a bridegroom, Christ went out from his heavenly chambers. He came with the presage of his nuptials into the field of the world. He came to the marriage bed of the cross. And there mounting it, he consummated his marriage. It was a bed not of joy, but of pain. And he lovingly gave himself up and joined himself to the woman forever. And who is the woman? The symbol of the church. So that in the New Testament, we find what example used much more often than the people of God. The church is the spouse of Christ, the bride of Christ, not an institution, not an establishment, the bride of Christ. And out of this nuptials, therefore, comes the firstborn, John. And then, at Pentecost, more children as a result of this nuptials. And at Pentecost, there are the twelve apostles the 120, and the Blessed Mother in the midst of them. You see, now she's beginning to be identified with a larger group. Tremendous mystery this is. And she had to suffer to become our mother. I'm sure there were no labor pains when she gave birth to our Lord. But when our Blessed Lord said to her, Woman, there's your son to John. 
So he called her woman, the bride. And to the son, there's your mother. I'm sure she underwent the pain of agony of every single child of Christ that would ever be born into the world. So she is our mother, not by metaphor or figure of speech, but in virtue of the pangs of childbirth. So may I plead to the priest first to restore in parishes devotion to the Blessed Mother, renewal of the rosary, and the study of her as revealed in the scriptures, and the communication of that love to people. She is the victim. This whole retreat has been based upon the idea of Christ as priest and victim. And it is to her that we have to go to restore the church. I have great devotion to her under the aspect of Lady of Lord. I've been there about 30 times in my life. And I remember one of the first times I went, I had been ordained five years, and I was studying in Europe. I had just enough money to go to Lourdes, but not enough to live on once I got there. And I asked my brother, who was a medical student at the university where I was studying, if he had any money, but he was a typical university student, too. And I said to him, well, if I have faith enough to go to Lourdes to celebrate the fifth anniversary of my ordination, it's up to the Blessed Mother to get me out. So I went to Lourdes and arrived broke. I went to the best hotel in Lourdes. I figured that if Our Lady was going to work a miracle, she might just as well work a big one as a little one. Well, a first-rate hotel in Lourdes would be a third or fourth-rate hotel here, or even beyond that. And I made a novena that I would get out of Lourdes. I asked for help. And the ninth morning, nothing happened. The ninth noon, nothing happened. The night afternoon, nothing happened. The night evening, ninth evening, nothing happened, and it was serious. I thought I would give the Blessed Mother another chance. I went down to the grotto about ten o'clock at night, and as I was kneeling there, a portly gentleman tapped me on the shoulder. Are you an American priest? Yes. Do you speak French? Yes. Do you know Paris? Yes. He said, will you come to Paris with me and my family tomorrow and talk French for us and show us about the city? And he walked me back to the hotel and he asked me the most interesting question I ever heard in my life. Have you paid your hotel bill? And I outfumbled him for the bill. And I arrived back in Louvain with much more money than I started with. That is a... I've asked many other favors, too, and with very miraculous answers. But here is one. Because we're living in days when the heart of Christ is broken, this aspect of what is happening in the church has only struck me lately. It was in preparing for the series of sermons that I have to give in Europe on the little flower. And what I find often in the little flower was that she said, I must pray 
I must atone, I must suffer to console Christ who is suffering so much in his church. Remember, as I told you, there's a continuing passion. And I feel it. My, when I I hear of anyone falling away from Christ, it, it breaks my heart. I haven't anything against them. But I love Christ. A mother certainly has a right to feel bad if her son becomes a delinquent. And so we have to look to Mary now to make reparation and not to be justifying evil. We live in the days of anti-heroes and there is very often a defense that is made of evil which is almost demonic. What we have to do is overcome that evil with good. And that means, as the Blessed Mother shared as much as a creature could in the co-redemption of our Lord, so we have to continue it. So one year at Lourdes, I went down to the grotto about nine o'clock at night to say goodbye to Our Lady. And then I said this prayer. I said, Dear Lady, send me suffering to save a soul. If you think prayers are never answered, you just say that once. Or tell anyone who doesn't believe in prayer. Because that's selfless. So I had to catch a sleeper back to Paris at 10 o'clock. And I ran back to the hotel and I ran up first flight of stairs, ran up. And somebody was following me. Ran up the second flight, someone following me. Ran up the third flight, someone following me. Ran down the corridor to get my suitcase. Someone was following me. I turned around. It was a young girl. I said, are you following me? She said, yes. I said, why? She said, I don't know. I don't know. But I saw you in procession this afternoon. And I just had to follow you. I said, are you here making an novena to Our Lady? No. She said, I'm an atheist. I said, you're not an atheist. You probably are a fallen away Catholic. Well, she said, if you want to call it that, yes. I said, I think you're my trouble. So, I did not go back to Paris. I stayed there for three days and finally got her back to the church. And incidentally, there was a pilgrimage, not a pilgrimage. There was a group who came down from Holland to the Pyrenees. An atheistic group. And she got off the bus at Lourdes, and the rest went on to the Pyrenees. The bus fell over a bridge that afternoon, but she didn't know anything about it. So I stayed for three days with her until I got her back to the church. Then my trouble started. I cannot tell you what I went through for about five days trying to get back to Paris. No railway ticket that I bought would be honored. I would go into a restaurant for food. There was no food. I wouldn't be on a train 15 or 20 minutes. They'd put me off. 
My ticket wasn't valid. Couldn't find a place to sleep at night. And after five days, I got back. But that was the price. Now, instead of defending any of the nuns who are leaving and defending any of the priests who are leaving, let's get down on our knees and pay a price. Because when we defend those who leave the Lord, we may ourselves be preparing the way to leave. But let us take the Christ attitude and do penance. And if we would make the holy hour every day for the priests, for example, of the diocese who have left, they will come back. And if you sisters would do it for those who are being with it instead of with him, they will be saved. They will not be lost. They're on our shoulders. I can recall many a retreat talking to priests this way. Now remember in one diocese, saying to the group of priests, I said, do not be defending those who are giving up the altar and leaving their chalices behind, not lifting hands in absolution, but rather get down on your knees and pray for them. And the priest came to me a year after, told me that they all undertook the holy hour. And one man who had been thrown out of the diocese for alcoholism began making the holy hour at the suggestion of one of them. And he died a year later in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament making his holy hour, quite reconciled to the church. This is the Christian attitude. To take the point of view of Christ and his Blessed Mother and not the point of view of the anti-hero. And there isn't a single one of your group sisters or of our group that cannot be saved by interceding to Our Lady. As the little flower said, I do not bother very much praying to the saints. They sometimes are slow to answer, but she answers me right away. And then another thing, fathers, say Mass to Our Lady. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we read, you off, we offer sacrifices for sins and for our own. We ought to offer a sacrifice of Mass for ourselves quite often. I do it every Saturday. have missed since I've been ordained for my own sins. Because the Lord has given me great gifts. I, I've got great sins and I have to make atonement for them. And so this now I trust will open to you the, the beauty, the mystery of Our Lady and how she is tied up with the church. And that you will see yourselves as her children, born of these nuptials. And as children say to her, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes, gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way mother does to me? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And oh, did he cry? Do you think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise 
And can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. And you know the way. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Archbishop Sheen uh, titled, The Woman I Love. And may I encourage you to uh, pick up a few of Archbishop Sheen's books, especially the ones he wrote on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, There is The World's First Love, which of course is a very popular title. And again, it's available through Ignatius Press. Uh, There is also the uh, Seven Words of Jesus and Mary. And uh, again, a very beautiful uh, Lenten reflection that he gave a number of years ago. Uh, I believe the year was 1945, where he took the seven last words that our blessed Lord spoke from the cross on Calvary and uh, tied them in beautifully to the seven times that uh, Scripture records the Blessed Virgin Mary speaking. And so uh, an excellent book, not just during the Lenten season, but uh, throughout the year. And I think, you know, we're always on this journey to try to be more like Jesus, to imitate our Lord. And I found a very good way to do that is to uh, learn from the Blessed Virgin Mary and uh, the times that she did speak in sacred scripture. Uh, there's almost, uh, I'd like to say, a valuable lesson uh, with each um, reflection she gave. And so uh, I'll take a few moments and share those with you because we have a little bit of time. And I'll quote from the book, The Seven Words of Jesus and Mary. And again, that is a book that's been republished by uh, Bishop Sheen Today Publishing. And so uh, again, it's available through our website, uh, Bishop Sheen Today. So uh, let me share with you again this uh, connection between the seven last words our Lord spoke from the cross and the seven times Our Lady spoke in sacred scripture. Uh, The first time the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, spoke was when she uh, spoke to the angel Gabriel and said, How can this be? Because I know not man. And of course, our Blessed Lord said, uh, the first time he spoke from the cross, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so there's that beautiful connection between not knowing And again, it is uh, something I think we can ponder on. Uh, I wish I had never stole my first dollar or had my first drink is a common um, sadness that many people share. And they wish they could unlearn some of their behaviors. And so again, our Blessed Mother says, uh, there is a beauty in not knowing. And so I think we need to uh, attend what Fulton Sheen would say is the university of unlearning, and that is, of course, the confessional. And, of course, uh, what better way to, um, uh, of course, uh, come and be, um, I want to say, not only absolved, but uh, start off with a clean slate. And there is that saying, it's God is, uh, it's much easier for God to write 
on a blank parchment and then uh, a piece of paper with a bunch of scribbles on it. And so as we clean the slate, the Lord can write messages on us, our souls. And so, again, that's just one example of seven of how uh, Fulton Sheen ties in so beautifully the words of Our Lady and the words of our blessed Lord from the cross. Um, I think of the words, um, I thirst, and uh, that was the fifth word uh, from the cross, and the connection that Fulton Sheen uh, puts to the Blessed Virgin Mary is how she searched for our Lord for three days when they had lost him. And of course, um, how often do we lose our Lord? And do we search for our Lord uh, as the Blessed Virgin Mary and good St. Joseph did? And so, again, there's something to learn there. Uh, but I think one of the uh, most powerful uh, connection is when uh, our Blessed Lord said this fourth word from the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And, of course, he was quoting from that beautiful psalm that uh, begins with despair and ends in victory. And yet our Blessed Mother had a beautiful battle cry in the Magnificat when she said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And uh, again, I think it's this idea that uh, wherever Jesus is, Mary can be found. And so uh, we need to, of course, bring her into our homes, just as St. John did uh, that day on Calvary when he took her into her home. And so we can do the same and take her into our homes. And uh, when our Lord comes back and he is looking for everyone, um, wouldn't it be nice to have the Blessed Mother with us so that when Jesus uh, looks for his mother, he'll find, of course, her children and, uh, again, know that we've been taken uh, good care of. And I think of that great quote that Fulton Sheen uh, said uh, on one of his uh, television broadcasts. He says, you know, I trust in the Blessed Mother so much. Um, you know, I've been having these conversations with her and building my relationship with her. And that I hope that when Judgment Day comes and I stand before our blessed Lord, that I would hear these words from our Lord's voice. And he says, My mother has spoken well of you. And so again, what a great consolation to know that uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary is speaking on our behalf and to uh, put a good word in for us. And so again, that great... Uh, Again, saying from Fulton Sheen, uh, again, the, the Blessed Lord said, My mother has spoken well of you. All right. I would just leave it to you to, um, again, pick up that book one day uh, called The Seven Words of Jesus and Mary. And uh, again, a great um, book to just um, cherish, but uh, to know that the Blessed Mother can teach us. And again, another great Fulton Sheen quote, he said, um, you know, if you're looking to be raised uh, to become a little Christ, who better to go to than the Blessed Virgin Mary who formed Christ for all those years in Nazareth? And so she too can form us. My dear friends, thank you for uh, joining us for this edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And may I invite you to visit us at our website at bishopsheentoday.com. And I'd ask you to pray for us and uh, continue to um, help us where you can. And so until next time.
May the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.